The kingdom of God is getting at this idea of the spiritual realm that's ruled by God and happy that God is their ruler. Verse 26, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So the kingdom of God is how he begins this parable. And we notice the words there that begin. And he said, that's a, that's a clue for us that the context has moved from the context of this smaller group of those who are called to be Jesus's followers, those whom he desired, he called unto himself. So the previous two parables were given to that smaller group of Jesus's followers. This indicates for us that the context has moved back to the larger setting, the, the multitudes, the larger crowds that are here, some for the miracles, some for the feedings, some out of curiosity, some because they truly believe in Jesus. But it's a big crowd, a big multiple uh, multitude of crowd. And so back into this context, Jesus said to them, the kingdom of God is, is, is as if a man. So this parable begins in a different way than the previous parables. It begins with the words, the kingdom of God is as if, or the kingdom of God is, to use the King James language, like unto or likened to. So there's a comparison here, and the comparison is between what follows and this idea of the kingdom of God. So a great deal has been written and said about the kingdom of God, particularly the kingdom of God in the parables of Jesus. In fact, so much has been written about the topic of the kingdom of God in the parables of Jesus. It could literally, the books written about it could fill libraries. So this idea of the kingdom of God and Jesus teaching a parable to teach about the nature of the kingdom of God is something that's very, very common in the scriptures. In fact, if we were to look back to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13 is a chapter in Matthew's gospel. I'm sure you're familiar with this. That's just packed full of parables. And if we were to look back at this chapter, you don't have to turn here, but if you can, if you like, page 973, if you're using a pew Bible, we find these, this phrase repeated quite often. In Matthew's gospel, it's not, it's not uh, the kingdom of God, but instead the phrase is the kingdom of heaven. But it's the same thing, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. We find verse 24 there that uh, the, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed. Or verse uh, 31, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Or the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. We could see down below the kingdom of, of the parable of the weeds as the kingdom of God. Or verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Or, or the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Or, or verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea. And on and on it goes. So we see that Jesus told a lot of parables, particularly in Matthew's gospel, that began to say the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like this. And then he makes this comparison. And so once again, it reinforces our understanding of the parables to say that, that the parables are intended to take a earthly reality and lay it alongside a spiritual reality so that the earthly reality that we see, we can then by comparison understand something about the heavenly reality that we don't see. And the nature of the parables is such that it's taking this earthly reality 
that in different contexts can teach different things. We demonstrated that in previous weeks as we saw Jesus use the same parable in different contexts to teach teach different truths. He uses the same parable to teach different things. He also uses the same elements of the parables in different ways to teach different things. So here we come to this idea of the kingdom of heaven and we see Jesus using all kinds of things like a net or a hidden treasure or seed being scattered or leaven being put into bread. And we understand right away that what Jesus is doing is he's taking these earthly realities and he's teaching different aspects of this kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. So what is this kingdom of God and how do we understand what Jesus is getting at here? Well, the kingdom of God, again, we could spend a lot of time really wading into what would be a full definition of this, but just to to give something short and concise to sort of suffice for our purposes today, we would say that the kingdom of God is something like the spiritual realm that God rules over which we would say to that, well, that would be everything. God rules the entire spiritual realm and He he rules the entire physical realm as well. But hang on, there's more. The entire spiritual realm that God rules over and is delighted that He rules over them. So that would be, I think, the best way to sort of put into a nutshell what Jesus is teaching about, what the principle, the concepts that He's teaching about is that spiritual realm that is ruled by God and happy to be ruled by God. Ruled by God and glad that God is the sovereign ruler. God rules over all things. He rules rules over the principalities and the, the demonic forces of the air and the God of this age. He rules over all these things. But most of these things are not happy that God is ruling over them. The kingdom of God in the words of Jesus, in the parables of Jesus, he's getting at this idea of the spiritual realm that's ruled by God and happy that God is their ruler. So Jesus is likening all these things to this kingdom, this spiritual realm that is under the rulership of God and glad of it. And this kingdom, this spiritual kingdom can be thought of in a couple of different applications. One would be on an individual level, the kingdom of God in us. As we ourselves are brought, not just under the rulership of God, but as our spirits and our desires are brought to a place where we are glad of that. We are happy to be ruled by our sovereign. So we can think of it as an individual level, but we can also think of it as the church and the growth of the church and the presence of the church in this world. So there's a couple of different ways to think of it. And Jesus, usually with most of these parables, is speaking to both of those in some way or some form. So this kingdom of God that Jesus is speaking of, this, this realm, this realm of the sovereign creator of the world who rules over all things, yet in this age allows many of those things which he rules over to continue to be in rebellion against him. This sovereign, this ruler, this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven, notice with me the comparison that is made, is like unto a man scattering seeds. Now, I doubt that we would have written it that way. If we were writing a parable to teach the reality of the kingdom of God, I doubt that we would have compared it maybe to a man scattering seeds. We probably would have come up with something much more grandiose, much more majestic than a man scattering seeds or elsewhere a net that catches fish or leaven that goes into bread. 
But in this context, a man scattering seeds, I think I probably would have compared it unto a majestic mountain that no weather front can overcome or a majestic sea that the the waves will beat against the shore regardless of what anyone does. The waves will come and they will beat upon the shore. Or perhaps an all-powerful king, an all-wise king who is perfect in his wisdom and perfect in his power and all of his subjects are glad to kneel before him and serve him. I think I probably would have been inclined to compare the kingdom of heaven to something more like that rather than a man scattering seeds. But once again, this is a reminder for us of just the humility of God. The God who, when He came to reveal the Father, would come in the most humble fashion possible. Not just as a lowly man, but as the lowliest. One who would say, others have a place to call their own. Foxes even have a place that's their own little hole. And I've got nothing. He came in the most humble fashion. He reveals the Father in a humble way, showing us that that's the character of the Father. And so when he likens the kingdom of heaven, he's not, he likens the kingdom of heaven to this man scattering seed. He's not saying that the, that God is not a majestic, powerful God, but he's saying that this God that is majestic and powerful is humble. And he's like a man scattering seed on the ground. Now, The parable goes on to say, verse 27, He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows and knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once He puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. So once again, the parallel is plain and obvious. Both this and the parable of the soils are dealing with a sower, seed, soil, and plants that come up unto a harvest. And so the parallels are clear and plain for us. But as we begin to look into this parable, let's first of all just just make sure that we understand the elements of the parable and what the elements of the parable represent. Because there are a couple of ways that we could understand some of the, the mechanics, if you will, of the parable that would lead us into a couple of different interpretations. And we want to make sure that we're on the right track. So there are two things, I think, in the parable that are easy to misunderstand. And if we do misunderstand them, we'll be on the wrong track. And the first thing to be careful that we understand is, number one, who is the sower? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like unto or is as if a man who scatters seeds on the soil, on the ground. So who does this sower represent? In the parable of the soils, we saw that the sower represented at first Jesus because the seed was the word and Jesus came spreading the word, spreading the seed. But then eventually that sowing or that scattering or spreading of the seed now falls to us. So we said throughout that parable that the sower is Jesus and it's us because we are now sowing the seeds that Jesus came beginning to sow. And then elsewhere we see similar parables, for example, Matthew 13 that tells us another parable about seeds and plants. And that was the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in that parable, we're specifically told, Jesus says, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So I think that maybe an inclination may be to think of the sower here as Jesus. But the sower in this parable is not Jesus. And let me show us why, and then it'll become important for us a little bit later in the parable to see why it is that the the sower is not Jesus. Instead, the sower represents for us all those who 
sow the seed. We could call it maybe gospel workers, those who preach, teach, and speak the seed of the word. Now, here's how we know that the sower is not Jesus. Look once again at the parable. The kingdom of God is as if, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. And now verse 27, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. Now, there is simply no way that that corresponds to Jesus, the one who not only sleeps, and we'll get to the sleeping part in just a minute, but what that's going to show to us is the sleeping part is going to show a loss of control, a lack of control. He's asleep while the seed is doing its thing. That in no way is describing Jesus. But in particular, the seed grows and he knows not how. That can't apply to Jesus. So the sower here is not Jesus, but the sower is the gospel speaker, the gospel proclaimer, the one who preaches, teaches, or speaks this testimony of Christ. So the seed that's sown in the previous parable of the soils, the seed was the word. Now, there is no reason here in this same context, this is only just a few sentences after that parable, there's no reason for us to suspect that Mark intends for the reader to now think of the seed in anything different than it was just a few sentences earlier. There's no reason within the parable to think that. So the seed still represents the word. So the sower is the gospel spreader, the one who speaks words of Jesus, the one who speaks from Scripture, the one who teaches, the one who preaches, the one who proclaims. Now, the second thing for us to understand is the harvest. Let's let's make sure that we understand the harvest properly because the harvest can get us a little bit sideways if we're not understanding of the harvest. So the earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in in the ear. Verse 29, but when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So what is the harvest? There are a couple of options that the harvest could be for us. And the first would be to, if we began with some of the biblical language of harvest and sickle and laborers and harvest time. And if we thought from our scriptures, what what is a common principle? What's a common truth? What is the harvest a common metaphor for? And the harvest, particularly in the Old Testament, is a very common metaphor for judgment, isn't it? Many places we could see this. One place in particular, Joel chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And here it is. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. So here and many other places, we can see that the prophets have as one of their favorite metaphors for judgment, the idea of harvest or the collecting of the harvest or putting in the sickle, so to speak. So the harvest can often represent a time of judgment in the context of the parable that might represent either the end of time when Christ returns and there is the judgment, Or it might mean the end of one's life in which their works were then complete. And then after that will come the judgment of their works. But either way, it's a sort of a finality. It's an ending of what can be done. It's an ending of the time to grow fruit, to grow grain. It's an ending of that time. And then it's the time to judge what has been grown. So that's one option. But another option would be this. And the reason I think that we're going to go with this, I don't think I know, 
But the reason we'll go with this is let's look once again at the parable. Verse, verse 29, but when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle. So clearly in that verse, the he is the same he that's the sower. So once again, it just doesn't work for the one who is bringing about judgment by way of either the end of time or the end of a person's life. It just doesn't work that that's also the gospel worker. The scriptures never present it that way for us. Jesus is the judge. He's the one returning. There are places like Matthew 13 where we are told that the angels will be the the ones that sort out the good fish from the bad fish. But either way, it's never us. So I think on that basis, we must say that the he that's the one who is putting in the sickle, the same one who is the gospel worker, can't. this can't mean for us that the harvest in this context is the judgment or the end of one's life or the judging of one's life. Instead, there's another metaphor, there's another meaning of harvest, and this is a meaning that Jesus picks up on quite frequently. And we are all familiar with this one. This would be the harvest in the, in the context of, follow the, follow the reasoning here, the, the harvest that represents the conversion of the sinner. Jesus often used that terminology, that metaphor of a harvest to indicate that a sinner has believed and repented and been harvested. So think about, for example, John chapter 4, verse 35 through 38. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? These are the words of Jesus. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What's Jesus talking about there? Remember the context of John 4? The context of John John 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. And remember how that story came about. Jesus and his disciples come to this Samaritan village. Jesus says, go and uh, get us some something to eat and I'm going to sit here and rest on the well. And he has this meeting with the Samaritan woman. In In that meeting with the Samaritan woman, what does Jesus do? Jesus sows seed, doesn't he? He sows the seed of the gospel into her heart by way of her ears and by way of her mind into her heart. But what do the disciples do? Here the disciples are in a Samaritan village with the Messiah of man. With the Messiah of God's people. And apparently all they seem to do is go into town and get some lunch. Meanwhile, Jesus sows the seed into the Samaritan woman's heart and then what does He do? He goes ahead and reaps because she believes. So he has sown the seed and he has reaped the harvest, meaning he has reaped her conversion. Then what happens? She goes into the village and what does she do? She sows seed. And then after sowing this seed, what happens? The whole village comes. Now do the words of Jesus make sense? You are reaping where others have sowed. Meaning, I think this is sort of a sideways rebuke by Jesus to say, here we are in a village that's never heard of me. And you're here with the Messiah and all you can do is just go get some food. You can't even invite them to come and hear me. 
Meanwhile, she has gone and invited the whole town. She has sown seeds and now you will harvest what others have sown. So what is the harvest? The harvest is being present when God reaps that soul of conversion. The harvest is is being present for that miracle of conversion, that miracle of belief in which the sinner is then transported from eternal death to eternal life. And so Jesus is saying to them, you're going to reap where others have sown. You're going to be here and you're going to witness this coming to salvation of what we're told is the whole village. All right. So there's that's one place that we see that. Another place we see it, Matthew 9, verse 37 and verse 38. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Clearly, Jesus there is speaking of the context to say the seed is being sown and the seed is about to come to harvest. But the laborers are few. We need more laborers. Laborers meaning the ones who will be present for that miracle of conversion. Not that the conversion is brought about by the gospel worker, but the the reaping is the being present as that harvest is brought in. Notice also the continuity of the metaphors here. Remember earlier the parable of the soils, we said that very clearly the parable of the thorny soil was showing to us that even though the plant was alive, there was no spiritual life because spiritual life is what? Fruit. And so here in the parable of the seeds, spiritual life begins when? Not at the sprouting of the seed. Spiritual life begins at the harvest, at the giving of fruit, at the bringing forth of fruit. Okay. So that is the two. Those are the two. I think the two key elements that if we understand those two elements of the parable properly, then the parable is going to open itself up to us. The sower is the gospel worker who preaches, proclaims, teaches, speaks, writes, whatever, who communicates the testimony of Christ, the gospel, if you will, the words of Scripture, the communicator of the truths of God. The harvest is the point at which the elect of God, having received the seed that's now grown to the point that it's ready to give forth fruit, the harvest is the gospel worker that's there when that moment of giving fruit fruit occurs and conversion happens. 